Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend Giselle Donnelly. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI and Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Our special guest today is Rastislav Kacer, Slovakia's ambassador to the Czech Republic. I arrived um, in Prague this morning, and if I were uh, Tom Friedman, I would preface this interview by evoking an anecdote involving a taxi driver that drove me from from the airport into the city, who uh, was a, um, a former uh, a professional military officer who served uh, as part of the NATO force in, in Yugoslavia. And he started a conversation by a diatribe against Ukrainian refugees to, hmm. my, to my great consternation. Um, he complained about the upward pressure on rental prices, um, about the expensive cars they are bringing into the country. Um, we've seen reports in the Czech Republic of Ukrainian Romas coming um, into the country and not quite receiving the same treatment that is extended to other Ukrainians. Like I'm, I'm not going to sort of complain about this facet of sort of Eastern European nature, but rather raise this as a concern about where the events in Ukraine might be headed, especially with this orchestrated famine that, that Putin is, is, is trying to set in motion, which will inevitably uh, set in motion large movements of, of population towards Europe, including people from sub-Saharan Africa and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and other parts of underdeveloped poor, poor, poor world, together with the sort of slugfest on, on the Eastern Front, um, I mean, I, you know, I wonder how, how you know, concerned we should be that actually Vladimir Putin might be, might be winning this war. I wonder, uh, Ambassador Kacher, we, you know, we recently had a Czech guest on the podcast, Pavel Fischer from the, uh, from the um, Senate's Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, I mean, I wonder what your sense being in Prague and seeing both the Czech and Slovak reaction, both the refugee inflows and, and to the broader policy questions facing, facing Europe, uh, what, what, what's your sort of sense of optimism or pessimism about where things are headed? Well, usually people label, label me I'm pessimist and paranoid. Then I reply that uh, I'm obliged to because I've been dealing with security issues and strategic issues for all, almost 30 years now. And uh, I think I'm obliged to be a little alarmist uh, in not, you know, uh, make things happening in the, in the wrong way, but to prevent them happening and alarm people. So here, um, I, I'll be, at the beginning, I'll be optimistic. I think Putin cannot win this war. He's already losing, and I mean, he's losing morally, he's losing in all sense, and this is unsustainable on long run. However, here in the, in the grain of pessimism or realism is that in between, he will lose. There are two questions uh, when this is going to happen and what will be collateral cost of him losing, and that can be high. So um, coming back to the core of your question, um, 
when I would separate that reaction here. The politics in Czech Republic um, was very simple. Almost everybody was supporting Ukraine, and almost nobody was supporting uh, President Putin. There was a very interesting turnover for President Zeman, who apologized uh, for his pro-Putin uh, position before, and he called Putin lunatic and uh, and his action unbearable and un un intolerable. So here we saw quite substantial change. The government was absolutely clear since the beginning. Uh, they were one of the top supporters of Ukraine, uh, front runners in this. You know, even today they would rate uh, somewhere about top top uh, five. Slovakia is more complicated case than that in terms of politics. President absolutely clear since the beginning. Government very clear. Uh, foreign minister, prime minister, defense minister. Slovakia was extremely supportive for that. But here, um, I'll be curious how we will stand the test of time and all of those emotional erosions uh, of you spoke before. You know, by the way, little fun, you know, I think this is kind of a common sickness of taxi drivers. They are all of them like copy-paste. They, 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 I don't know whether... Probably if you were a little more sane and a little more clever, you wouldn't be doing a taxi driver. Though, you know, but um, I don't want to be rude on that. I apologize. Uh, but um, I'm losing my pensions with, with those kind of drivers, and I always reply very harshly, and then they shut up. Say, you know, they don't run for poverty. They run for the life uh, if they speak of the cars, etc., etc. But uh, the population overall, I think, was extremely supportive. Uh, there was a great deal of solidarity both among Czechs and Slovaks. The only thing where we differ is the op political opposition, because here there is al almost nobody in politics uh, who would be relevant, who would be supporting openly Putin. There is almost al almost zero. Even Mr. Okamura, who is uh, sometimes weird in his reactions, he's not openly supporting Putin. On Slovak side, which is very unfortunate, former prime minister who knows that uh, he's lying, who knows that he's wrong, he's just abusing uh, those um, bad sentiments. Uh, so in Slovakia, we see in the opposition confused reaction that disturbs uh, quite, quite, quite a lot. But the government reactions, population reactions were good. The question is how long this is going to stay. And that's another set of questions. Now that we made it all about the taxi drivers, I just want to say I'm here in Bucharest and I've heard the same thing here. Um, it seems that taxi drivers in Eastern Europe are um, interesting, a phenomenon. You can, if you want to hear about anti-Americanism, just press the button and there they will go with questions like, is it true that Americans and then X or Y or Z. We we are ashamed to to say it on the podcast, <laughs> but at least the, the DC and Northern Virginia guys are solid, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let let let's let's cut to the chase. Let's make this clear. There's not a taxi driver problem, but a Tom Friedman problem. Okay, that's right. <laughs> people, people think they're getting in the. Uh, taxi with a New York Times reporter, and they think they have to rise to the occasion. That's right. Um, that's that's interesting too. And uh, also in DC, I've heard about the gas prices in Romania per liter. So you know, it's it's interesting too. But back to the Eastern Front, Ambassador. Um, I wonder if you want to help enlighten us on the divisions that exist, not just among taxi drivers, but among um, our people. Um, I know that you've been directly um, and importantly involved with Globsec, and Globsec's yearly poll um, is something that 
Eastern European pundits um, across DC are watching closely. And the results within this war are staggering um, and scary when we're looking into our countries um, in, in on the Eastern Front. In Slovakia, um, I've seen 51% consider themselves not part of West or East, or but rather in between. 28% think the war was provoked by the West. 16% um, believe that it was provoked by Ukrainians. And I'm not picking on Slovakia because um, similarly staggering um, numbers in different contexts you see in Romania and in many other countries on the Eastern Front. So I'm wondering... And there's a very high number in Slovakia, I think the highest, but um, but really comparable across the region of people who believe in conspiracy theories in the context of this war, more than 50% in Slovakia. So I'm wondering, you sitting in the Czech Republic, where numbers are slightly smaller than Slovakia, but still pretty scary, I wonder if you can help um, us make sense of what it is within our countries that project as best as they can at the governmental level support for Ukraine and a clear understanding of black and white in this conflict, unlike um, in some countries in the West, and um, but still um, battle this issue of a population that in the in this black and white light um, still looks pretty divided. Well, thank you. Uh, truth is that it's been a couple of years ago uh, I've been initiating um, research uh, about the public opinion and views. Uh, originally, um, uh, my concern was that uh, there is a drift towards accepting more authoritarian, kind of a decay of traditional uh, liberal democratic values and not only um, not only in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe these are more vulnerable but we see those shifts all around you know we see the growth of radical politics um, in Italy um, in in Netherlands even in countries who thought were completely immune for that in the north and at that time which is already quite a few years ago um, i initiated that we should do um, we should do research on that what are the trends and why this is happening there is a couple of scary things uh, in these trends in central europe and let's talk let's focus now on central europe because i think we are more vulnerable we need to look i would recommend to look into the trends so um, not only look at the last volume of this year research but look into the past what is the trend and trend is bad Slovakia is is not good. Uh, Bulgaria is probably the worst overall as a package deal, uh, but Slovakia will be next to it. And there are a couple of things in which you know there is competition. Uh, who would be front runners uh, in this unfortunate uh, hit parade? To me, uh, the problem is, uh, and we try to also measure uh, what is the effort done by Russian intelligence and these information services, uh, and we thought that. Uh, they focus on individual countries uh, in various ways. They always try to find things which is the most divisive issue in the country. And there'll be tailor-made um, information campaign strategy for every individual country because some of us are vulnerable in that, some of us are vulnerable in other things. Uh, they've been extremely successful in Slovakia, but we, we also, when we try to measure the resources and the intensity of the campaign, 
it looked like in Slovakia there was about 10 times more uh, uh, effort put into uh, into the campaign uh, per capita than any other country in Central Europe. And we see the success. Uh, uh, I don't know, you know, why the focus. I have my theory why Slovakia. Um, probably this is not a time to dwell into this. Uh, I'm still act active ambassador, and it includes some of the classified information on that. So I don't want to go this path. Uh, but it seems like the cutting into the Middle Europe, make uh, Middle Europe in the core something which would uh, resemble the instability uh, using the minority issues, uh, etc. Seems like Central Europe is ready. Most scary actually is shift in Hungary because Hungary traditionally used to, and I served as the ambassador of Slovakia in Hungary for five years, Hungary used to be, seemed to be traditionally quite an anti-Russian. You know, and now, today, I think, we got, we got the... Uh, 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 anniversary of killing uh, Imrenak, uh, the leader of 56 revolution. There were a couple of people killed. There was a very strong anti-Russian sentiment. And it's flipped over. When you would look at the dynamics, which I mentioned before, in Hungary, the dynamics scares me a lot because there I see shift of population aligning with the policy of Viktor Orban, which is openly pro-Russian, anti-Ukrainian. And this is not only since the beginning of the war, but already for a while, for a couple of years. So uh, there is a um, couple of reasons why um, Central Europe here is different. We still cannot uh, fully cope with the communist heritage. Some people are critical when I say this, but uh, these 40 years damaged, it, it tore all the community of, of the roots, and we are still fighting with this. But also, we got still vulnerabilities of kind of identity issues and self-confident issues. And I think this self-confident issues of our politicians, this is a very serious issue. In Slovakia, I see it all around happening all the time. We do not have leaders who would be well-prepared in strategic education, in languages, uh, overall, they feel vulnerable. Uh, they are big shoulders, but uh, suddenly they come to Brussels and they feel second league. And they cannot kind of catch up on that. And so they pull in their shell uh, and they, they take defensive approach. And often this second and third league of our politicians, they feel more comfortable um, in some other company because uh, they you feel more equal. So I, I think... Uh, the public opinion is not led because um, in I trust that in society the active leadership of politicians and politics plays extremely important role. And here in the Czech Republic, the leadership, as I mentioned, it's much clearer. Uh, the prime minister, all the government, all the relevant politics, all the part, all all the parties, almost in the parliament, are clear on that. In Slovakia, no, there is division, and you see leaders who's got some trust, you know, like as I mentioned before, uh, former Prime Minister Fico, who was very confusing. And that confusing people and the Russian propaganda is using that and is, and is using every little crevice in, in which they would push the wedge. And if there is a little hole, they will keep digging until the hole is larger and larger. So I think uh, the main problem is unclear uh, political leadership and second lack of responsibility actually by those people because for political marketing they will be able to use anything I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes i'm kidding i'm joking that they would put their grandma on chain and 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 and, and take it around the square uh like like bear 
if they got money and if they got preference for that. So they got very little, they got very low standards, very low limits uh, on the morale and, and, and patriotism. I think that that's a bad thing. I wonder if one could go back to an idea that you introduced in some of your opening remarks, uh, but I think I don't mean to change the subject, but just to sort of connect the dots, as it were. Um, you mentioned that you were worried. I mean, I'd, like you, I think we are definitely in a moment, uh, uh, a moment of great risk, but also a moment of opportunity. And there are two things that I'd like to ask you about. First of all, how do you see this window of opportunity? How long do you think the window will be open? I particularly worry uh, not only about the squirreliness of the Germans, the French, and the Italians, and such like, uh, speaking of today's news, but also that um, by the end of the summer and as winter approaches, the challenges won't be gas prices so much as they will be heating oil prices and cold people rather than people whose vacations are ruined. And that the the battlefield narrative will become one of uh, neither side is able to win. And these all these and other similar lines seem to intersect at some point in the late summer or, or early fall. If you toss in also the uncertainties of the American election and the way that that will divert American attention, that seems to be the, the sort of point of maximum danger. So conversely, uh, the narrative today is much different than it was in February. Uh, so I think the window of opportunity is is still open, but I'd be very much interested in uh, how you assess the situation and what you think the possibilities are, both positive and, and negative. Tell us about the U.S. leadership. Are they team Biden doing a good job or not? All right, put it simply, Delvar. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about us. Well, uh, Giselle, you're absolutely right. You, you hit the right uh point that there is a in this all of that shit happening uh, there is uh, uh, the opportunity and thanks to uh, Ukrainian bravery and their ability to resist uh, now we see that opportunity evolving actually should they should the blitzkrieg of uh, Putin uh, was uh, success uh, we would be doomed I think I would be already today organizing uh, Slovak refugees, uh, uh, and 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 we wouldn't be speaking of the opportunities. He managed to unite Europe more than uh, I even hoped. Uh, he managed to um, get new two new members, very good two uh, members of of NATO, and we see more trust in our values and more trust in Europe. Europe is getting uh, more united and it's getting stronger. That 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 is clear. You know, I don't know. We got to the point where any predictions are extremely hard to make. I used to be policy planner, and they always ask me for long uh, forecasts for 10 years, and I was always laughing, and I say, well, I could barely, we could barely reliably forecast a year for, for purpose of political and foreign policy and security planning, not, not a long term. 
and in a crisis like that, um, we got already to the point where I used to call that moment, and I, and I was reading now my notes, uh, which I was making in 2009 for Chicago Summit, where I wrote, Putin is going to uh, call for confrontation. He will confront us. He will want to erect a new Iron Curtain. Uh, on, on those notes, I wrote, the question is not whether we will hit the wall. Uh, the, uh, we will hit the wall. question is when we will hit the wall, how hard we will hit the wall, uh, and what the first uh, drop of blood uh, will uh, will cause. And there I, I put a question mark and said, well, will the, the, the first blood hitting us on the wall uh, make us stronger, uh, take a lesson, or will it unleash a spin uh, where things will get under control? And this this was 2009, little note on the margins of, of NATO summit in Chicago. And I think we are in the second part of that, where we don't know still whether this blood what we see, it's taking the spin or uh, we are taking lesson. Seems like we are taking lesson in Europe. I don't know whether we are taking appropriate lessons still in the United States. Uh, it looks like the fixation on China, which I don't blame for, uh, it's a blinding, uh, it's preventing seeing that still if Europe uh, will go bunkers and if, if Europe uh, will erode, uh, this will have a dire consequences uh, for, for the United States. So seems like the United States is not still fully aware of, you know, thanks for all of the support, thanks for all it's done, but seems like there is not enough strategic awareness of uh, or alertness of where we are here in Europe and what will be the long-term consequences of uh, for the United States, if we hear, uh, we'll screw things, uh, and that's it. You know, and I'm 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 using very blunt language on that. So uh, whether this is how long will stay window open? I'm positively surprised by Germany. Initially, this was confusing, uh, as we expected. Uh, there was uh, nothing shocking, but it's good that they are turning. Uh, these uh, telephone conversations and this um, um, uh, pen friend uh, over telephone love kind of Putin Macron is weird. Uh, uh, in all of that talk in Europe of face saving uh, for for Mr. Putin, uh, that's the most disturbing thing, uh, uh, which I think should stop, and it should stop immediately. We we really should not care about face saving for Mr. Putin. I think the hard time really will come in the later. Later autumn and uh, and over the winter, um, Russian propaganda will use everything. They will use refugees. They done it already before. Uh, in the first wave uh, of refugees in Europe, there was heavy footprint of Russian intelligence. This was clear, supporting um, um, uh, those traffickers and everything. So they will use every little thing, including political corruption. So they will use any means just to uh, um, put the wedge into every little crack uh, we have in Europe. We need to be aware, we need political leaders, but also we need the pressure from, from, from think tanks and every community because we'll go in the rough waters and the question will be priced what we will pay. At the end, I, I, will, I, will, I will finish uh, with your question, um, with that, with that uh, response to your question. I think Putin, I'm sure, Putin will lose. Uh, and free world will win. The question is at which cost? And that cost 
may be high, that cost may be dire, that cost may be dramatic. And I think we don't realize all of that talk that the the petrol is a little higher and and the, and the heating uh, will be higher okay so heat less you know i'm ready not to heat myself i'm ready to switch off completely in the autumn my heating in the house i'll put a plumb uh, on on the gas uh, and i'm ready to use my jumper uh, wool jumper and 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 be in my court uh, trousers all the time because the cost if if we get soft and if we lose, the cost will be extremely dramatic for all of us. There are lots of really interesting threats I, I, I could pull. Let me just focus on, on one thing, which is this question of opportunity that this pr- situation presents, especially for the European Union, which over the past decade or so has seen a certain inward turn just relative to the 1990s or the noughties. I think it's fair to say that Brussels is less interested in the wider world and more interested in, you know, dealing with domestic crises of sorts. And uh, seeing Ukrainians, uh, I mean, fight and die for the European idea, so to speak, is an opportunity to reinvigorate that project, including by extending membership to Ukraine. Uh, and that's a very divisive subject, obviously. It looks like Paris and Berlin are not fully on board. I don't know what's cooking, you know, on the train with Draghi <laughs> and Scholz and and, and, and and Macron. But but I think it's reasonable to expect that that this will be a subject of of, of great sort of discussion, controversy, and and and, and back and forth, uh, including during the Czech presidency of the Council, which is coming in a few days. Uh, I have never really got a straight answer from from any of the Czechs we've had on the podcast or that I've, I've sort of discussed this subject with. Um, do you have a sense of what the strategy is that, that the Czechs will be using to to push this agenda forward, uh, you know, against certain reluctance in these in these older member states and what chances of success there are for a sort of renewed enlargement agenda? Because I think all of us on this podcast can agree that that if you know somebody deserves EU membership, it's the Ukrainians, mm. even if they might not tick all the boxes and all the requirements mm. and, and, and and all the sort of you know formal formal procedures that 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 are in place. Well, I think uh, you're absolutely right, uh, the, uh, Mr. Putin's uh, unintended uh, un- unintended consequence of all of that. Uh, military invasion is that he made one of the most pro-European nation out of Ukraine. So if there was any confusion about the character of the country in the past, Mr. Putin uh, is carving out of a mass of um, Ukrainian population one of the most Euro-enthusiastic nation. And it needs to be recognized, they need encouragement and then they need support. There is no question about this. There is a big confusion here, of course, as you say, um, for two things, uh, there's l- lack of any enthusiasm about enlargement, because when we look, for example, uh, and this is not related to Ukrainian crisis, it goes be- before uh, February this year, if you, if you would look at what's happening in Hungary, uh, if you would look even uh, complicated position uh, in a position of Poland, which I would not compare, and it's, in, and it's, and it's dramatically improving in the last, uh, in the last month or so, 
if I was strategist uh, in in Kedorse or or in Berlin, I might be skeptical about the enlargement. I would say, do I need another Orban uh, in, in the EU? So I would understand the skepticism and look what's happening in the relationship with Bulgaria and North Macedonia, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Uh, and again, and then another layer was that we got already some candidates in the Balkans. So why should we be more um, enthusiastic about Ukraine? Um, and why not uh, about uh, Montenegro or, or even Serbia? Here, I'm, I'm completely on your side. And actually, I was part of some debates where um, actually among um, Slovak and, and Czech side, this was a, a complete enthusiasm and strong push to support Ukraine uh, in having um, the associate status and, and, and start uh, the negotiations and open chapters. Um, I was at the uh, beginning when Austrian uh, foreign minister was extremely enthusiastic and then that enthusiasm slowly evaporated. But uh, here, uh, what I hate when I look, because often pretext is we promise something to Balkans. And when we look how Serbia is behaving, that they are open, uh, they, they are more or less openly supporting Russia uh, in all of this, and, uh, and they are kind of blackmailing. So if you and we know it in Slovakia, we already remain. You know, you would remember Mr. Mecher who was saying, if you don't accept us to the EU and NATO, we will turn to the east. And that's absolute. You know, that that's just a ridiculous nonsense. That's the most rubbish argument you you could use in negotiation. So I would say thank you, uh, uh, thank you, Serbia, for all of that uh, kind of um, blackmailing. So if I'm not sleeping with you tonight, I'm sleeping with that guy tonight, next night. You know, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, we we want to be strong on values. We know where you want to go, and we know that you are able to dedicate. You know, I don't want to uh, in any relationship with somebody who is not able to commit. Uh, thank you for non-commitment. Uh, you know, and Ukraine, who is uh, who is now more committing uh, than Ukraine here? So I think it should be recognized. And the, of course, this is not that if we, uh, we we open the process, that they are a member tomorrow. That's not a question of tomorrow. But first of all, they need encouragement. And second, all of that process has got value of of its own because you need to start important reforms happening. You need you, you go through the chapters. It's improving legislature uh, process. It, it's it's all of that framework how your country works uh, that makes influence on it. it and it's beneficial for Ukraine and it's beneficial for us. We should not hesitate and we should just immediately go ahead starting the process. And Balkans fine, but and and what? Ambassador, you um, promised you're a pessimist, but I hear a lot of optimism here. So I want to challenge you um, before before we wrap this up. Um, and I'll contextualize it um, with regards to how the conflict might be evolving, how West's, the West support overall might be evolving in the next few months, because you were optimistic and said it's not the summer, it's the fall. That on the Eastern Front podcast sounds yeah. as optimism. <laughs> and so, <laughs> as good as it gets. Yeah. And so, um, I was recently talking um, to a Ukrainian diplomat, um, and he pointed out to me that though these numbers are not confirmed, um, a Ukrainian MP has recently. Uh, gone public to say that right now in Ukraine, between 100 and 300 people die on the front every day. Um, and 
what I also hear um, here on the Eastern Front in terms of fear and uh, from people that are that are looking onto this conflict is the fact that the West overall, with the divisions and nuances we already discussed, is about to or is doing it right now, giving Ukraine just enough weapons to keep fighting but not enough to make a big difference. They keep losing territory. That's what they're saying. So if we are to continue this strategy or the rhythm of the flow um, of weapons is actually decreasing in time, we're looking at a scenario in which Zelensky cannot just give territory. I don't, you know, the Italians and the French keep insisting that this should happen, but they don't consider the fact that uh, if Zelensky would do that, according to the polls, there's a high chance that the Ukrainians will remove him from power because the absolute majority wants to keep fighting and does not want to give one inch. And if this would happen, such a scenario, we also have the risk in Europe of not five, but 20 million refugees if this is imploding. Um, so I'm, I'm afraid they're not considering the consequences when they're making these pleas. But if you are to consider this scenario for the next three to six months, um, is that something that you consider likely, given how things are evolving, the fall will become uh, will be coming, the uh, weather will get colder um, in the U.S., we're going to be wrapped up in elections. Um, is that something that we should consider? And if so, how do we manage it? Um, and, uh, and maybe you turn out to be an optimist and are telling me that this is not going to happen. And then I'm thrilled. If I could just quickly add one note uh, in lieu of any further questions. It seems to me that we have begun to treat Ukrainian morale as an independent variable, a constant. Um, especially, uh, that, uh, always in war, you should examine the things you take for granted. But given the fearful pounding that the Ukrainian forces are now taking in the Donbass, I, I, that's another sort of window question. Can we assume that the Ukrainians will, um, uh, you know, stick to stick to their guns, so to speak, uh, come what may? All of those uh, encouragements or pushing uh, to give up parts of territory, it's completely ridiculous. Uh, it, it's not going to work. It, it's completely senseless uh, uh, request. Uh, it doesn't make sense. And even more, if you do it publicly, it's, it's, it's hugely damaging. And it's even hugely damaging those who, who make those suggestions. So I don't understand this. Uh, it's the same. Well, Ma Macron is actually an agent of Ukrainian propaganda to try to rally <laughs> Ukrainian. Talking about conspiracy theories here on the Eastern Front. This is this is about the same stuff like uh, recommending the face saving for, for, for Mr. Putin. I say, you know, th that falls in the same category of rubbish, uh, which shouldn't be used. 
even if, if you would use it in the most intimate negotiations behind two doors closed, I should never, ever erase uh, those things public because it's ridiculous. Uh, it's eroding uh, politics in Ukraine, as, as precisely as you point out, uh, uh, that may lead nowhere only to um, an instability. We need to keep supplying uh, Ukraine um, with weapons. And there will, of course, be a legitimate question at some point. To what degree, uh, to what degree other states, uh, and I'm not saying necessarily NATO, but maybe you know, coalition of uh, willing, will come and help uh, Ukraine at certain point because that's completely legitimate issue and it's completely uh, in terms uh, uh, with international law and everything. Ukraine uh, was attacked and it's defending. It's a just war uh, by all moral and by uh, legal consequences of that. Uh, so um, here we should stop uh, using the wrong language we should keep supplying uh, Ukraine weapons what they need. We should keep help them to keep moral high because it's not simple and it will be only harder and harder. So and keep that moral high. It, it they need to feel visible support uh, regularly, encouraging uh, politics regularly, uh, in opening uh, their um, European um, associated or you know uh, the uh, not associated but uh, the accession. Um, status as soon as possible. Uh, we need to do it. We got no better option. All of other options here are only eroding EU, making EU weaker, uh, more prone um, for, for future risk, etc., etc. We we got limited options here, and all of that uh, uh, weakness uh, will only uh, hit us in the head at some point. Say that we now have an impromptu appearance by Ambassador Michael Jantowski, very much a friend of the podcast, um, and a co-host of a little roundtable that that Julia I, and Jeff Gedmin are um, helping to put together in Prague next week. Uh, and he's aching to get a little bit of that nice rosé champagne. That I thought he was aching to be on the podcast. He's not the <laughs> only one, I have to say. Ambassador Karcher and I. Uh, have been drinking for the podcast and it's almost dinner time here in Prague. So I wonder if this is a good good time to bring this to a close. From Dalber Rohaj and Zell Donnelly and Yezosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Ambassador Rastislav Kacher. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.